As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me today the one and only Eddie Stern, who is the author of my recent favorite yoga book of all time, One Simple Thing. The subtitle of this book, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Transform Your Life. One of the favorite things about this uh, cover, Eddie, is that, and I'm such a stickler for graphics, is that this book could have been made at any point in time. So bravo on that. Thank you. Bravo on everything that you've ever done. If I'm honest, you've been a huge influence, even though not a direct teacher to me, you've been a huge influence of mine for ever since I started 20 years ago. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's true. When it comes to your story for my listener who doesn't perhaps know you right away, overcoming the divided self is kind of the pretext of the writing of this book, all the signs of separation that we've all experienced in our own lives and our own work and families and teaching. And Dr. Chopra said it really beautifully in the last paragraph of the forward where he says, I deeply admire Eddie Stern for bringing clarity and compassion to such an unholy mess. <laughs> Taken together, this book is the gentlest and most accessible way to embrace yoga and all its potential. Insofar as humans have infinite potential, another home truth about consciousness, yoga unfolds a field of possibilities that would otherwise be closed to the divided self. Stern never lets us forget our untapped potential, which may be the core lesson of his teaching and his life. So this actually brings a tear <laughs> to my eye because every time I work with you or see you and we've, we've been on a couple of panels and we've, we've just been in the same space a few times. And I'm always humbled by the fact that I always go into it thinking you're such a badass, and uh, who am I to be sitting with you? And every time you bring such a wholeness and such a humility. So I just thought it would be nice for you to share with us how you found yoga, how it came into your life, and just briefly how you got here. Um, well, first of all, thank you for that really kind introduction. I mean, you know, I'm just another guy doing yoga. And, um, <laughs> you know, we're just all some people doing yoga. Hmm. There's all this talk that you hear in the yoga world about, um, you know, senior teacher this and senior teacher that. And, you know, these are the senior teachers. And I think all that is garbage. I mean, in the, I think the whole idea of senior teachers was probably created by senior teachers. We're just people practicing and the hierarchies that are set up in these worlds that are supposed to be about freedom and liberation and equanimity and equality so quickly get overrided by the old hierarchies 
from a world that we know is a broken system that we're superimposing on a world that's supposed to be about liberation. So obviously there's a lot of work to be done. And um, I hope that, you know, you know, you and I and a lot of people of our generation can be part of the people who are trying to do that work and change the kind of words that we use when we speak about yoga and change the kind of ways that we talk about and act in regards to, you know, how do we actualize what we think our, our highest aspirations are? Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with really being comfortable with being in a space of not knowing as much as possible, because as much as you and I both know, and everybody knows, we know very, 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 very little. This is a given and given that most people know about, like we know so little about everything. Uh, we know next to nothing, but we don't actually have to know a whole lot. All we really have to know is like who we are and how we fit into all this. And then it makes our path a lot more clear. So at its essence, I think yoga is just a practice of knowing who you are um, and having some tools to help you support that process of knowing, having tools to help the listening process so we can listen better to the wisdom of our body and listen better to the wisdom of our nervous system and of our emotions and of our mind and our ability to choose. And if we listen to these things and can develop this capacity, it makes it so much easier to know like what direction should I go in and how shall I act and what should I eat today? And what time should I go to bed? And what kind of mm -hmm. yoga practice should I be doing today? All those things should be from listening. And what happens is we, we turn them into top down things where we seek for knowledge outside of ourselves, which is fine. That's why we need teachers. But then we take that knowledge to be the way that things have to be the way that we're supposed to do things. And then we come up with dogmatic systems that don't necessarily lead to happiness. I think what the yoga practices are supposed to do are lead us to a state of listening so we know what we should do. Um, when we don't know what we should do, then it's okay to seek guidance. But when we know how to listen, then we should look for that guidance and that wisdom from within us. And I think from the time I was about 15 or so, I was questioning what the purpose of anything was. Like I hated school. I didn't <laughs> like being in high school. I didn't like being a student. I never had. I remember walking into my first day in nursery school and I was three. And I remember so clearly thinking to myself, when is this going to be over? And I was like counting the days from nursery school until graduation of when I was going to be out from there. And when I was 15 or so, I was really questioning, like, does this have any meaning? Does this have any purpose? And in ninth grade, we were reading uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And, um, my English teacher, I wrote about this in, in my book, said the three most important questions you can ask yourself in your life are, who am I? What am I doing here? And what do I do next? And for me, that changed everything. I was like, oh, now I know what to refer to. And nice. that's what Deepak Chopra and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi referred to as self-referral. Mm -hmm. I thought, now I know what to refer to. Before I was referring only to I have to go to school. I have to learn this subject. I have to dress a certain way. It was all object referral or referral outside of myself. But her simple phrase of who am I? What am I doing here? And what do I do next? Was my first inkling of self-referral. And that was a, a game changer for me. So that when I came to yoga, I knew already 
that when I was about 18 or 19, that this thing, whatever it was, was going to help me be really more firmly established in this self-referral. And that's pretty much what, what it was about for me. And, you know, along the way, I got sidetracked with this and that, the other, you know, I got sidetracked with learning fancy asanas. I got sidetracked with teaching Madonna. I got sidetracked with whatever. But I don't think teaching Madonna, first of all, is a sidetrack. That's like, you know, if, that's definitely a sidetrack, you know, and. Um, but it, wait, it, a think that wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Just wait one second. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Madonna had a big influence on a lot of us. She brought out the music in so many of us. She brought out our dancing for so many of us. There is a certain moment where you have to think, yes, you're just a vessel. You're just a person. But you were the one who actually was able to ask that question of her. Who are you and what are you doing here? And that's kind of really wonderful, I feel. Notable. Well, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I didn't like teaching Madonna yoga, I definitely did. And it definitely made me feel good. Um, but you know, along the way, you start to identify with things outside of, um, you know, the self referral thing. And so and these are the distractions that come on your path. Fair enough. Teaching celebrities can be a distraction. And then you have to admit that and go, you know what, I was feeling pretty proud of myself because I was teaching all these celebrities and thinking, you know, you know, I have friends who are famous. And uh, that is definitely a, um, you know, that's a distraction. Fair enough. Um, so, but underneath it there, you know, I, I can always come back to this thread of like, the name of the game is being established in your, in your awareness or in and, awareness generally. And when we talk about the two sort of main questions that you were asking when you started on this book, where do consciousness and biology meet and is happiness a biological phenomenon? We're understanding now that this was really about you sorting out how it is that we can stay focused squarely on this completely internal experience of solace, you know, free of discrimination, clear-headedness, health, compassion, a deeper sense of purpose, all these things that we define as yoga. The ability to selectively eliminate all extemporaneous thoughts when did that arise for you? How does that play itself out in your day-to-day -day life? And how do you teach that? How do I teach which part? The ability to selectively eliminate all extemporaneous thoughts for moments at a time. You teach it through asana and then through meditation, pranayama. How? Um, I think through being sensitive to what a priority is for you in that moment. And we might have a number of a thing, things that we need to attend to. You know, we might have kids. Uh, we might have dishes that need to be done. We might have jobs. We might have bills to pay. We might have all those things at the same time. And um, the so it's not a blocking out of all thoughts. It's being able to choose which thought you need to act on at that time. And that's just the ability to prioritize. And, Good listening. And it's exactly. And it's like making a list. And it's a to-do list of you know, what you need to do first. And some of those things might be an emotional to-do list. It might be a mental to-do list. It might be a physical to-do list, or it might be a, an actual responsibility to-do list. Hmm. You know, feeding my kid before I do my yoga, hmm. doing the dishes before I cook another meal, doing some asanas to pre prepare myself for pranayama. So you know, all of those things, like we become so overwhelmed by having so many things to do and so many things to choose from, 
sometimes it's really hard to focus in on what's the one thing I should just do right now in this moment. It's like, as I've described before, if you have a, a sink full of dirty dishes and it's overwhelming, just pick up a fork and wash that and dry it and put it away. And then as soon as you do that one, then you can pick up your next dish. And yeah. after a while, you've gotten through the whole pile and then yeah. your sink is clean. And we need to do that like with our minds and our emotions sometimes too, and with our bodies. Sometimes you don't know where to start with your yoga practice and you're feeling lazy or unmotivated. Well, just try inhaling and raising your arms over your head to start and do that a couple yeah. of times and see yeah. if that gets your energy like moving a little. And if it doesn't, maybe you need to lie down and rest. And if it does, then you can think about what to do next. You talk in your book about the tenets of yoga, the eight limbs as responsibilities, which I really looking at it through the lens of responsibility more accurately. And I really appreciated that because I've always looked at the, these eight limbs in a totally different way as things I must do. And you go through them as follows. Yama, I am responsible for my interpersonal interactions. Niyama, I am responsible for my physical and mental discipline. Asana, I am responsible for my body. Pratyama, I am responsible for my nervous system. Pratyahara, I am responsible for my sense organs. Dharana, I am responsible for the ability to direct my focus and attention. Dhyana, I am responsible for my absorption and my dedication. Samadhi, I am responsible for my perception and experience of unity consciousness. I really appreciated that. It's a whole different way of looking at the practice and it sort of references the dishes in the sink because I'm, I, it's just what I'm responsible for. Is that my dharma, that my, the, the very first next thing I have to do that makes sense prioritizing. And I think it's just really a big note of thanks for that because I've never thought about it like this in all these years. Uh, I don't know where that kind of came into my mind from, but um, one day it just did. And I think it had to do also with the way that Deepak speaks about the yamas and niyamas as, especially the yamas as a, the spontaneous behavior of an awakened person. So that when you are awake, for lack of a better word, um, or established in the self, then there's no thought or no experience or no even impulse in you to harm any other person like ahimsa because there are no others um, there's no reason to not have satya or honesty or truth because you're living in truth when you're established in yourself so i i really was inspired by that idea of of the spontaneous behavior of an awakened or enlightened person and at the same time, we know that yama are practices or vows that can be taken because in yoga sutras, they're spoken of as the Mahavrata, vows that are, can be taken by anyone regardless of, you know, the status of your birth, the place where you live, or the time that you're born into. And um, if they are great vows, a vow is something that you choose to do. Um, I vow to, you know, maybe you're going to do a fast. Um, so I vow to not eat for a couple of days or for a certain time period during the day. Or I vow for a certain time period of the day to always um, only tell the truth. You know, if I can't do it all day long, maybe I'll just do it for two hours in the morning, you know. And so a, a vow is something that you consciously choose to do. 
Um, when you consciously choose something, then you're taking responsibility for the way that you're acting on a vow, the way that you're deciding to behave. And so what I pulled from that was mainly the idea of responsibility, that I'm choosing mm -hmm. to do this, and therefore I choose to take ownership of how I'm going to act on it. And I'm not going to let it be a top-down approach, um, a biblical commandment, um, whereby I'll incur sin if I don't do it. The only sin that I'll occur is just maybe feeling a little bit bad about myself um, or whatever karmic repercussions come about. We don't know what those are. Right. And um, in thinking about the yamas' personal responsibility, then all of them became a little bit softer also. It wasn't ahimsa, nonviolence, don't kill anything. It was that if I want to be nonviolent and not kill anything, then I need to express kindness to all beings and to all animals and to the planet. And everything then took on a little bit of a softer tone. And in that softer tone, it felt to me like the five things listed in Yama were a little bit more achievable and not so didactic not so top down heavy and uh, so that's why i chose to write about them like that yeah i also i really appreciated the fact that you were very clear from the very earliest parts of the book that the distracted mind isn't a bad thing it's really good for people who have never ever entered into a conversation around yoga this book the distracted mind teaches us how to harness the power of attention you said some i'm paraphrasing but not to be swayed or dismayed when you sit for meditation and you can't focus your mind to make sure that the aim is sort of the state of yoga. We'll call it samadhi, but it's really just that everywhere you look or listen or smell or touch for those moments of time, there's only consciousness, our innate goodness. And the path to that upaya is the sort of remedy. There are no more objects when you take that path and at a certain point even for a glimpse of a hair of a second there's only the subject there's only the the seer there's only the energy that is watching or the consciousness that is listening i want to know how old you were when you remember the first moment that you felt that i think i was like five or six and i i, I just thought it might be interesting for the listener to learn a little bit about that moment for you um God, I have no idea uh, how I, well, that was the first time I felt that. I definitely wasn't five or six. What happened to you when you were five or six where you had that experience? I was looking in the mirror in the bathroom. I had crawled up on top of the uh, sink in my bathroom. And I was looking in the mirror for what seemed like hours, but I think it was minutes. And I was just going, who are you? staring right in my own eyes. And of course, at the time I had glasses. So I'd taken my glasses off and I was seeing double. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was seeing two of me. Who are you? Why are you here? And it wasn't an angry thing. It was just like, it just was the big existential question. And my mom found me in there and she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, mom, who am I? And I had this moment when she walked out, she thought it was really cute. She left and she left me there. And I had this moment where I closed my eyes and nothing, there was nothing. There was only just the seeing, the asking, the question. And I felt, I remember feeling that for the first time and I didn't feel it again for many, many years. 
But when I did feel it again, I was transported to that sitting on top of that counter and looking into that mirror. Wow. I know. It's so weird. Yeah. I think it just goes to show you that these things are like, they're all completely natural to us. Like yes. you know, there's nothing special about all this stuff. It's been going on for like, as long as there have been people we've been questioning. So mm. it's completely natural. It's completely normal and mm. it should be encouraged. In fact, it's yes. encouraged in kids as much as possible. Yes. Rather than trying to mold them into little like tech bubbles. <laughs> when um when you were writing your book, you realized that both of the questions that you were asking required a real exploration of the central nervous system and the sort of body, mind, spirit relation you really go into. And this is why I love the book so much, the the naturalness of it, the facts of how the nervous system works, how a state becomes a trait, how you know, the is the mind the body? Is the body in the mind? All these questions. When you go into the sort of reorganization of the brain and you talk about how there are these three ways in which the brain processes information and the postures help all three trajectories, uh, I understood then why it is that yoga is so important to do every day. And it's not just like some construct that we're saying, stick to your routine from back to front, across motor cortex, from thought to action, from up to down, bottom to top, which is really emotional, uh, up and down rather from bottom to top and top to bottom is really the directions of emotional processing and from side to side in the brain, which is really about comprehension and sort of rearranging the ways in which we see the postures in yoga help sort of amplify the way in which information moves across the brain up and down across and and the practice is really about keeping the brain limber is what i came to understand can you speak to the ways in which you have found this to be true in your own life can you speak to the ways in which you practice every day what is your ritual routine well, I mean, I, I find in also uh, along with you that that idea of how the brain processes information, it's not, you know, we don't know if it's the creator of information or we definitely know it's a processor. Um, and um, this is why one of the reasons why in the book, I don't really touch upon the idea of like what creates consciousness or where consciousness is. I just take it as a giving that we are conscious and we are cognizing things and experiencing things and how that experience can be mitigated or changed or deepened or expanded. So the idea of how the brain processes information back to front and up to down and side to side, you see this echoed in things like where forward bending positions are soothing and calming right. and backward bending positions are energizing or exciting and twisting positions are grounding and stabilizing so you can use the different types of poses that we have in order to strengthen the way that information flows in the brain if you feel that you need that someone's upset they need to be calmed or they're under a lot of stress you're going to have them do a lot of supine poses forward bending poses restorative types of poses um, maybe things where the legs are up a wall or where they're resting on pillows um, if someone needs to be energized a little bit, you might have them do some sun salutations and a little more focused on standing poses and backbending poses. Um, 
if kids are hyperactive or you have people or adults that you're teaching that are super ADD, then they need like deep um, pressure on the muscles to ground the nervous system and uh, poses like inversions or twisting poses especially are very grounding for the nervous system and, and have that sensation of deep pressure on the muscles, a deep steady pressure, not like deep tissue massage, but a deep steady pressure which becomes very grounding for the um, for the peripheral nervous system. And that helps to, to balance them. So your daily practice in my daily practice, I will practice Ashtanga yoga and um, as taught by Patabi Joyce. And I do the primary asanas and intermediate ones. And I still do some third series poses, but not all of them. Um, and I do some pranayama and I meditate and I also do some puja, some ritual. And um, that's pretty much what I do every day. On page 93, you talk about the most important tool we have in the process of moving inward is our breath. And in the model of the three bodies, the sheath that lies between the body and the mind is the breath that is the link to the inner levels of the mind and the intellect. If you want to work with calming the mind, the breath is a fail-safe place to begin. I really appreciated that you have that so soon in the book because we then get into a whole conversation around vagal tone, microbiome, nervous system, east and west, all the the other delicious things that I get so lost in. And the breath really is the key for me. And I wonder if you could share your sort of top two or three pranayama practices for the curious like myself totally i like that you picked that part first of all like this is such an awesome podcast i mean you're so well prepared picking out all these parts of the books it's really kind of fun to hear them read back mm. at me so the thing about the breath being the easiest way to move inward is based on the model of the five sheaths spoken about in the Taitiriya upanishad where uh, we have a physical body made of the food we eat, the water we drink, things like that. Then we have a subtle body, which has three parts. One part is the system of pranas, of which there were five, prana, apana, vyana, udana, and samana. And those are basically the information flows of the autonomic nervous system. And then we have the manomaya, which is the, the sheath of the mind, which is processing information, uh, sensations, emotions, thoughts, memories, and experiences. And then we have the body of the intellect, which is sort of the cognizer and decider of how you should act on the incoming information. And last is the body of bliss, um, where all of our, it's called the karana sharira, where all of our karmas are stored, as well as our potential, our creativity, and our direct connection to consciousness. So if you wanna move from body awareness into a deeper level of mind awareness and then intellect awareness, the thing which is gonna help you get there is that first connecting layer of the breath, the pranamaya, so we use the physical body and the asanas, but we have to add in the breathing so that it connects us to this level of energy 
and the sensation of energy, the movement of different types of energies that then connect us to the very fine um, touch of the mind. And at that level of the mind, then you can refine that through things like mantra and strengthen the sense of the cognizer or the intellect, which is sort of the substrate of the different movements of the mind, which are thoughts, emotions, feelings, sensation, memory, and experience. So um, prana is the link or the breath is the link between the physical and the subtle in this particular model. So you do asanas for the body, prana for the nervous system to move your awareness inwardly out from the objects. And then you use mantra to cross the level or the layer of the mind so that you meditate, which helps you to cross across the level of the intellect and establish, establish you in the joy of being. So it's asanas, pranayama, mantra, meditation. And then the meditation supports the establishment in the bliss of unlimited experience of being. And then that becomes how you bring that sort of energy to your day-to-day -day behavior, which helps everything. Yeah, exactly. So the pranayamas that um, I like the best, my favorite breathing practice is resonance breathing or the coherence breathing. Yes. And I, I write about that in one of the appendixes. Yes, you do. And uh, resonance breathing is where we slow the breath from 15 to 18 breaths per minute, our normal rate, uh, down to about five to seven breaths per minute. And what happens at that rate is our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems come into an equilibrium. It begins to reset the homeostatic functions of the body. It increases our resilience, reduces inflammation. Um, but as well, it changes our brainwave states when we do it for an extended period, say 15 to 20 minutes. And the cycle of breathing of five to seven breaths per minute is one-tenth of a hertz per minute, which means a cycle of six. And for our brainwave patterns, one-tenth of a hertz is a delta brainwave state, which is deep sleep with no dreaming. So when the Tibetan monks go into very deep states of loving-kindness practices, they go into a theta state, which is expanded creativity and um, connection to all beings. A delta wave state is a deep meditation state that uh, it comes before the theta wave state. Uh, it's still a very deeply healing, profound state uh, and has a lot of changes that it affects on inflammatory response, resiliency, um, a sense of being and things like that. Mm -hmm. So simply breathing at the coherence frequency for 15 to 20 minutes brings you into this delta wave state, which is a deep meditative state without having to try to meditate. Right. So if you're a person who says you can't meditate or you don't like meditating, you can do the resonance breathing, still get the pranic effects that it has for the physiology, and at the same time, enter into a meditative state without having to try to meditate. So that's why resonance is my number one favorite. Yep. If I could only pick one practice to do the rest of my life, it would be that one. Mm. Um, and then next for balancing the hemispheres of the brain, I like single nostril breathing, where you just breathe through your left nostril for, you know, you can start off with five inhales and exhales through one nostril and then do five only through the other. And then you can extend up to, you know, 15 or 20 or 25 or 30 breaths. And that really balances the right and left hemispheres of the brain. So for basic entry-level practices, 
Those are two really safe things to do, which have a lot of data behind them as well. I also feel like those are not necessarily entry level. Those are my dearest practices as well. Cool. Waking up in the morning and before I go to sleep, it's all about resonance breathing. And frankly, your book uh, sort of affirmed that that was a real thing that I could and should be doing and that that would bring me into a, a real clarified state in my nervous system. I started to be able to feel things shifting in my, even in my vagal tone after doing that regularly. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I found that after, when I first started doing the resonance breathing about three or four years ago, um, this was before we created the app that I did it for 20 minutes a day for five weeks. And towards the third or fourth week, I started to sense that when I got into bed in the nighttime, I could feel sleep in my, in myself. I could feel like how to activate my parasympathetic nervous system and shut down all the activity of the day and fall asleep in like one or two minutes. And before that, it used to take me a really long time to go to sleep. Yeah. Um, so I felt that that was like a, a, a game changer for my sleep habits for sure. And if you're listening to this, this is actually the way, if you're ever looking to sort of strengthen your nervous system, your central nervous system, this is how we spend so much energy maintaining homeostasis that we don't even know that we're spending. And we, as a result, get increasingly more adaptable to changes in the environment and the body learns how to maintain a state of health. But without this, we spend all that energy in homeo, you know, maintaining homeostasis and we use it all up. We've all been there at some point or another where we hit what's called burnout or rock bottom, whatever you want to call it. And we haven't actually re-nourished the body often enough or with any consistency. This is the way to do that. Resonance breathing is the way to do that. And I found it so helpful to read about it in the book and there are, you'll find when you get the book, if you're listening, make a note page uh, 94 is where Eddie talks very clearly about the koshas, the, the layers of being that he just referenced. Page 154 is a really beautiful list, a numbered list of how to sort of look at and address your yoga practice so that this sort of resonance breathing becomes a normal occurrence once you've gone through this list a few times, just deciding how often, what kind of energy you want to give to it, the days you want to practice, um, the time, the gratitude that you offer before you practice, all of these things that lead finally to this subtlety, which Eddie calls something that's very sort of elementary, but I feel it's the most subtle aspect is this resonance breathing by far. And that's, that's what leads to it. We go on into right around page 170, a really nice talk about the body and its tremendous capacity to correct and heal itself. And I think also the resonance breathing plays a role here. The breath has tremendous influence on the nervous system, which is where our body's internal balance and auto-correct mechanism called homeostasis lives. The nervous system coordinates most of the activities of our cellular environment, all of our physiological processes, and our emotional responses to the world around us. So strengthening and balancing the nervous system is a key component of physical and emotional health. 
So this is kind of where I really learned for the first, and I've seen this read and written so many times, but you're so clear in the delivery of the fact that this is what we're doing here. So for the folks listening who are really interested in how to define what they're doing, if they're not interested in yoga, they're not interested in a discussion of prana, but they are interested in longevity. When you talk about the five pranas, you go into it, I think it's page, let me see, 174. The prana, apana, samana, viana, udana. How do you teach that to somebody who really has no interest in learning yoga philosophy or yogic terms, but really does want to live a long, vital, vibrant life? Well, very simply, I mean, um, the, our entire interaction with the world is based on assimilation and experience. You know, we eat some food, we have to digest or assimilate it, we get rid of the waste. The parts that have been assimilated, we need that to go to all of our body, body parts to nourish us. And then why do we want to be nourished so we can be alive and continue to interact with the world? So prana is our incoming nourishment in the form of food, for example. And apana is what we don't need, which leaves us as waste. And the assimilation is our digestive process. And the um, transference of the nourishment of food through our whole body is happening through the blood circulatory system. And then after we've been nourished by that food, we go about our lives, do the things we need to do. And that is how we express ourselves and interact with the world. So these are basically the five pranas and they have their own mechanisms within all of our different bodies. So for the food body, that's what prana is. But for the breath body, it's going to be different. Incoming air is prana and outgoing breath is apana. And the assimilation as the oxygen gets absorbed into our tissues to nourish and energize and bring nutrients etc is going to be the assimilation and the spreading of oxygen through the whole body through the red blood cells is going to be this transference and communication uh, and then things like speech or hiccuping um, or expressing ourselves is going to be the outward thing of udana so the sanskrit words you don't really need them. I talk about them because I'm talking about basic yoga principles, but what the Sanskrit words were was were just words that they were using to describe processes that occur in the, in the nervous system on different levels. So you don't really need those words to know that you take something in, you assimilate it, you get rid of the waste, what gets spread around your body or your mind or your heart or your breath nourishes you and then you use that nourishment to express yourself in different ways in the world. If, if you're assimilating things into your emotional body, then that's going to be helpful for you for expressing yourself in the most honest type of a way, um, for managing to deal with either pain, um, emotional pain, disappointment, stress, trauma, all different types of things. These are all the things we deal with as human beings. And if our nervous system is in really good communication in all of its different parts and all of its different aspects, then we're going to be a little bit more well-situated 
to interact with the world in a healthy way and in a healing way or in whatever ways we see ourselves interacting with the world. Right. So mainly what I think we're looking at with this model of the five pranas on any different level are the communication networks that exist within us and making sure that all of those processes are finely tuned so that we can interact with the world uh, in the best, most happiest, healthiest way possible. And to that, and you go on. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who wouldn't want that as part of your life? <laughs> right. You know, this is a basic thing. It's not like yoga. It's not meditation. It's yeah. not science. It's, it's basic humanity. Right. And I think really what the yogis were interested in were, you know, humanity is not kind. Nature is not kind. You know, nature will destroy anything in her path when she feels like it. We have no control over it. And it's very easy for us as human beings to be violent and destructive and mean and judgmental and negative and harm people. It's very easy to do that. It's actually quite hard to be kind and peaceful and understanding and soft and, and to listen. Like these things, that we need to be trained in these because it's so much easier to be the opposite of that. Some people naturally have it, but... Generally speaking, looking at the world and looking at all the people in it, we see that there's a lot of violence in the world. And even in circles of people who are very well-intentioned and do a lot of meditation, we get judgmental. And we're a little bit mean behind the backs of our fellow practitioners and other teachers and stuff like that. It's so easy to do. Uh, it's much harder to be really kind. It's much harder to be nice and compassionate. And I think that's what the yogis were interested in training us to do and giving us practices to do. The Sanskrit terminology is extremely peripheral, uh, but the essence of it underneath is that, you know, nature is not kind. The world is hard and we need somehow to interact with it in the best way possible. Yeah. I really appreciated also your thorough discussion of the vagus nerve, the pneumogastric nerve, as Charles Darwin called it, in association with emotion and how it's connected to the heart, how it's connected to all the nerve endings in the intestines, diaphragm, lungs, that this, when we breathe slowly, that it stimulates that nerve, it creates tone in that nerve, and it sends a message of calm safety to the brain, which allows us to be kind and soft and do the work of actually going past the sort of natural, instinctive, animal, protective, FU instinct and go into the place where you're serving and helping. I wonder if you could just share with us briefly why your interest in the vagal tone conversation and, you know, just talk a little bit about the fact that it's so key for heart health and immune health and lowering levels of inflammation and bringing about positive emotions. So basically everything you just said about heart health, um, lowering levels of inflammation, emotional health, uh, balance of the nervous system, the, the vagus nerve is in, in vagal tone, which means information flows through the vagus nerve, are very important for our well-being. And it just so happens that as Dr. Stephen Porges has spoken about, and written about that there are four practices he's identified in all religious and spiritual traditions 
which are having a direct impact on it. And, and those are practices of postures like asanas and yoga, practices of breathing, things like pranayama and resonance breathing, practices of vocalization, which means chanting, or even things like ujjayi pranayama or the brahmari pranayama, and behavior, which we find in yoga, such as yama and niyama. So he didn't specifically identify those practices of yoga, but he did identify posture, breathing, vocalization, and behavior. And when I first heard that from him, it was like bells and whistles going off in my head. I thought, exactly, like these are all of the practices that the yogis taught are targeting the vagus nerve and the tone and health of the vagus nerve. And what that also means is that all of these practices are targeting the conscious application or the conscious use or manipulation of our autonomic nervous system. That the yogis were somehow tapping into these autonomic functions and beginning to control them for small periods during the day or longer periods during the day for transcendent reasons um, to transcend limited ideas of I, or as you spoke about, the limited ideas that are from a divided self, to return to wholeness. And that's why I find the whole polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve uh, conversation so interesting, um, not just because of what the vagus nerve does, but how the yogis identified particular practices that would act on it directly in order to help them achieve higher levels of consciousness. Yeah. And I appreciate also, you just said this, just to clarify for the listener, vagal tone is really just the good smooth flow of current through the vagus nerve, through the organs from one point to another point. Yeah, the information flows from the gut up to the brain and information flows from the brain down to the gut. And uh, when there's low vagal tone, the information's not passing through or not getting transmitted. When there's high vagal tone, there's a lot of information going back and forth. And as we practice postures, breathing, chanting, and literally kindness or behaving well, we begin to see that vagal tone improve. The gut and the brain are in better communication and we have a higher quality of life, period. Can I say one other thing about the this vagal tone discussion? Yes, please. Um, one of the reasons why this I so keyed into this also was that I felt it supported an, this other argument that I was trying to make in the book, and it was really the thing that my that the whole book was written about, and that was that I felt that there was this physiological basis for transcendence. And that had to do with how all of these different practices that the yogis taught were impacting autonomic nervous system function. So, for example, the, some of the functions of the autonomic nervous system are heart rate, respiration, digestion, sexual reproduction, and sleep. And so if you look at the pranayama practices, you're controlling respiration and also heart rate, and that happens within postures. For uh, digestion, you have particular dietary practices. For brahmacharya or sexual reproduction, you have the sexual responsibility or celibacy or the different types of brahmacharya that come into play. And then for sleep, the yogis also did things like practices to transcend sleep or limit sleep. 
so that all the main practices that they did were practices that were somehow impacting autonomic nervous system function. And what I saw from that was that the Kriyas spoken about in the beginning of chapter one of the Yoga Sutras, Tapa Swadhyaya Ishvara Pranidhana, Mm. that uh, all of these practices, of course, were fitting into uh, austerity, study, and surrender. And what those three things do is they begin to weaken the obstructions to pure consciousness, which are not knowing who you are, forming a self-narrative, which is based on the things you like, the things you don't like, and the fear of not knowing who you would be if you're not your narrative. So the, the practices of postures, breathing, chanting, meditation, and surrender to the unknown or surrender to God are weakening the hold that not knowing who we are has over us. And so there's physical things we're doing to weaken ephemeral thing of not knowing who we are. And so therefore I thought, well, the kleshas, which are, these are the obstructions, they actually have a physiological basis or location in the brainstem. So by working on the brainstem, we are weakening the kleshas. And then when I saw that the four neural exercises of Stephen Porges, posture, breathing, vocalization, and behavior were the things that strengthened the vagus nerve and the vagal tone. And the vagus nerve is coming out basically from the brainstem and traveling down into the body. I thought, well, it all comes together. You have the practices strengthening vagal tone. You have the, which are all the practices that the yogis did that were actually all elaborated on for the Kriya Yoga that weaken the kleshas. And therefore, there's a direct correlation between a physical practice, a emotional response or a neurological response, and the ability to find transcendent experience through the use of the body. Right. Um, there's just one direct line through all those four things. And I felt that his polyvagal theory and the neural exercises supported the idea that I was exploring um, of the clashes having this physiological basis. And, and that's why I liked it so much. Well, and you managed to put it all together so beautifully so that I mean this truly, if you're listening and you know somebody who has never done yoga, but who would be interested perhaps in the sort of scientific aspects the appendices at the end, appendix A is about resonance breathing. Appendix B is about the unilateral or single nostril breathing, as you mentioned. Appendix C is about being nice, loving kindness, meditation, super accessible. And appendix D is your body scan, which I think is really helpful for folks who've never looked inside. And I can't say enough about how efficient the book delivers such a message. It's so, I have the galley copy. Um, it's so dog-eared and posted it and marked up. I have to send you a picture. I might include one oh. in the post for this podcast, but I have to say it really did make a huge difference in my understanding of yoga and of what I'm doing here in general. And I even recorded an episode of the podcast previous to this one. I think it was episode 11 or 12, possibly 13. I'll, I'll figure it out where it was just me talking for about 13 minutes on postures, breathing, chanting, and behavior, and lauding your book and saying, I can't wait to have you on the podcast, even though I didn't know at the time when, uh, when you would be on. So thank you so much for that. I ask every guest three short questions. You can answer them as briefly or as long as you wish. 
The first is what in your personal world or in the world at large, you can answer either way, do you feel needs healing right now? Well. Big question. Yeah. Um, let me, my battery is running low on my computer. I'm just going to grab my charger. I'm going to be 30 seconds. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm just so happy that we had this time together. And frankly, the, um, I'll just fill you guys in listening on the book. It's called One Simple Thing by your man, Eddie Stern. The foreword is by Dr. Chopra. And it's, if you've never read anything by Deepak Chopra, I would say, make sure you actually read the foreword because he's so articulate, Eddie. I always forget how, what a great writer he is. You know, he actually had originally wanted to be a writer, um, but his father wanted him to be a doctor. Wow. Yeah. He was both in the end. I think uh, the thing, you know, right now, um, when it comes to healing in the world, of course, inflammation is the big problem. And um, we're all on sympathetic overdrive. And the inflammation is in our body and in our minds and in our hearts. And um, I think all this inflammation just needs to come down a little bit so we can listen to each other better and then figure out a path forward. But right now, there's not a whole lot of great listening going on. Thank you. Yeah. And what is your favorite view? My favorite view? Right now, my favorite view is from the terrace of our new apartment. I'm so glad that we moved back into Manhattan. So oh. I really like watching the sunset from our tiny little apartment right now. Oh, that's so nice. And you're, you're on the west side, obviously. We are. If you're seeing the sunset. Beautiful. Beautiful. And then finally, what does prayer mean to you? What does prayer mean to me? Um, I'm not too sure. Uh, in Hindu tradition, which is what I follow, when we do ritual for the devas or the beings of light, which are commonly called gods, but they're not, God is not a good word for the devas like Ganesha, Shiva, Durga. They're beings of light which uphold cosmic principles, and those exist within us as well. And so when you're quote unquote praying to the devas or doing ritual, you're actually invoking the forces of nature and the forces of the cosmos that exist within us so they can be more fully present in our being and in our lives. So the Hindu tradition is more about invocation and less about praying to something. And I think that's the perspective I take on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, every once in a while, of course, I pray for success for my daughter at college or the success of this, that, or the other, or for a plane to land safely. But for the most part, when it comes to ritual, it's really about invoking these energetic principles, which are macrocosmic and microcosmic at the same time. Hmm. Thank you for that. And thank you for everything. Thank you for this book. I really could not... It couldn't have come at a better time. I was just needing desperately something that wasn't super esoteric, but something that would just remind me of why. And this book really does serve that purpose. Thank you for your friendship and thank you for having yeah. me on, on your show, Elena. Yeah, you bet. How can, um, how can our listener find you? I have a website, which is eddiestern.com. Mm -hmm. And through that website, you can also order the book if you feel so inclined. Mm -hmm. I use a new 
really interesting little known uh, application called Instagram. And on occasion, I post a post of a picture of something there. And, um, my Instagram name is Eddie Stern. We're at Eddie Stern. Uh, I don't right. use Facebook. Uh, I have a Twitter account, but I'm never on it. So yeah. that's pretty much um, where I'm at. I'm, I have a website. I have an Instagram. I have a book. If anyone wants to send me an email, my email address is on my website. All those emails come directly to me and I answer them. And uh, I have a teaching schedule, which is on the website. So if anyone wants to come to a workshop or a lecture somewhere, they can find them there. Today is May 19th. Uh, I leave for Amsterdam on Wednesday. I'll be in Amsterdam for two days. Actually, I'll be in, in, in The Hague for two days, and Amsterdam two days, and London two days. Then uh, Israel uh, for just one class on June 2nd. And then I'll be in Minsk for tech conference about the yoga app, the breathing app, and then I'll be teaching in Paris, and then I will be teaching in Croatia, where we'll have a yoga and science conference on the 16th of June, and then I'll be back home on the 18th. Got it. And you mentioned that you have an app. Can you talk a little bit about that quickly? Yeah, this is called the breathing app, and it basically is a really simple app that guides you in resonance breathing. You can either breathe along with the image of a breathing ball, or you can breathe along with a clock that counts up and down to five or six seconds, which, and you choose how many seconds you want to do. Or you can breathe along with sounds that were created by Moby, an inhale sound and an exhale sound. And um, that's my favorite one to do. The app is free. It's on the iTunes store, and it's also on Google Play. Simple to use. That is super lovely. That's of interest for certain. I thank you so much, Eddie. Thank you for being on and thank you for taking the time today. We, we appreciate it. We all do. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Elena. Okay. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system, 
with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.